0: G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device we're really grateful for you to take the time to listen to download to this rvc podcast we don't ask for much in return though we would be incredibly grateful if you could pop to apple podcast or itunes and leave us a review obviously a five-star review would be would be great um we actually actually got a recent one which is uh, interesting saying it was uh, um from ian first saying it's great for revision for fourth year exams keep them coming five star so so that's good uh, hopefully a homegrown uh, student and uh, good luck with your, your exams uh, this weekend if you could leave us a review that would be great and it really helps us metrics and things that Brian and myself don't understand. So we're kind of out of the normal podcast studio and actually in, in uh, Karen and, and uh, my office in, um, in the QMH, so, uh, so uh, a bit out of our, our comfort zone, but hopefully we'll, we'll see how this sort of works today. So I'm joined <laughs> not only by, by uh, Karen Hamm, one of the senior lecturers here in the RBC, but also by Stefano Cortellini, who had uh, no, no introduction to one of our lecturers here in emergency critical care. So thank you both for, for joining on this auspicious uh, Friday evening. Thank, thank you, you
1: thank you Dom yeah. I worried that the people listening might think they're listening on double speed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just just because of uh, the the uh, rapidity of which yeah uh, absolutely. But well, they, 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 I was listening to um, a TED talk and it said that uh, although we we can we can speak at around two hundred and fifty words a minute, we can actually understand around closer to five hundred words a minute. Wow! So like how much so, do we routine at five hundred? Well, exactly. But also, <laughs> it talks about like what we were what we would be thinking about outside of that. Um, mm. Outside of that time too, when you're when you're talking to someone, you're think you're not only listening, but you're probably thinking about what you're going to say next and things mm. like that. And anyway, dinner It's Ooh. not really. Yeah. <laughs> we're thinking something else in general. <laughs> <laughs> mostly food with you, de- <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Um, but anyway, thank you, thank you very much uh, for, for joining. And, and I notice that you've uh, you've uh, both uh, penned an article in, in uh, uh, this uh, current edition of In Practice about abdominal trauma in dogs and emergency in- investigation. So maybe I'd ask you uh, um, why particularly this interests you, or that trauma sort of interests you, and um, and how you think that uh, trauma cases may be sort of different from emergency cases in in general. Okay.
1: Do you want to go first or? Yeah, sure. I mean,
2: the the, the trauma cases are one of the more um, exciting ones, aren't they? And we here at the, obviously we've got the trauma center, so we we do actually see quite a high caseload uh, of trauma. Um, and the reason we went into the trauma um, sort of perspective is that actually these cases can appear completely healthy and maybe have um, hemorrhages going on uh, so what we see is only the outside and uh, um, there are often uh, internal organ damages so like not only a full clinical invest, um, examination but also selected and targeted investigations need to be done to rule out any internal organ damages so to me this is the a little bit the the fascinating thing of uh, uh trauma and what's happening inside the uh, the, the the patient really
1: yeah the sort mm-hmm. of and bl- I think that's in- what's interesting there Stefano is the idea of the blunt versus penetrating trauma mm-hmm. and that was something we really tried to talk about a bit partly this article and the other exciting article that's to follow <laughs> but the concept of the difference between the two because as you say there's this con there's this idea that we have patients which are traumatised which may show nothing on the outside penetrating much more obvious it's much more obvious there's something going on but blunt trauma you may see nothing and as you say you've got quite a bit going on inside and I think for us the thing I really find fascinating about it as well is the concept of veterinary trauma care versus human trauma care because I think There's a lot of investigation in the human world about trauma care and people can get quite excited about that and try and translate it into veterinary medicine. And I'm really interested in what we can take from them, what's applicable Mm. to us and what isn't applicable to us. And so that's, again, where the penetrating versus blunt trauma comes in quite a lot, because to some degree, our trauma population is different to human human medicine so there is there are similarities road traffic accidents definitely similarities but the penetrating trauma you know the concept of the knife knife wounds and gunshot wounds which luckily we barely see in our patient population obviously are much more common in human medicine and the concepts how we manage them i think and investigate them is is quite different so i do i do find it interesting that, that that aspect as well and as you mentioned the idea that we're now a trauma center we the only one in Europe, the level one only level one trauma centre in I Europe. So, I think we yeah. are the RVC, so that's really something to be proud of. Um, and what that means is we've got that status because of the facilities we have and the staff we have. But also, it means we'll be contributing towards the data that's available for all vets in the world to use. And once we've got that data, that's being collected from loads of different trauma centres. It's an uh, initiative organised by um, VEX, the Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care Society. And once we've got that information, we'll be able to be a bit more um, informed about what we should be doing. I think it's going to be really exciting as more and more data comes out.
0: Yeah, the, the, I, I suppose the, uh, you, you touched on that, the, the VEX and ACVEC uh, initiative with um, uh, Claire Sharp and Kelly Hall uh, mm. organising the, 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 the trauma centres. And I suppose that was um, put out to, so you can... A vets sort of work together in in a group uh, a group way to uh, capture sort of cases, in, and yeah. in, in, uh, so, so we can actually sort of have a look at uh, um, animals as a model of tr- trauma from for people perspective as well so can, yeah. we, can we learn um but we need to know a little bit about the traumas that we that we that we see so so uh, with with regards to the blunt and penetrating trauma as you, as you said karen so you, what would as far as percentage um I, i'd imagine that we'd see more uh, blunt trauma than than and than penetrating trauma
1: certainly we do as a hospital and actually again this is coming back to that data collection I've worked in referral and first opinion practice and pr- the, by far the majority that I've seen have been blunt trauma and people thinking you know we're thinking majority here road traffic accidents I guess but actually we do see particularly in cats a fair amount of penetrating trauma in the sense of bite injuries um and so by Cats and, and little dogs, we'll see, we'll see a quite a bit of that as well. In terms of gunshots and knife wounds occasionally, and again, probably thinking cats and pellet gun injuries we see sometimes. But um, they're rare in for, in practices that I've been in. Not so much, I think, in North America. I think they can see a bit more.
2: I think it's a bit, yeah, maybe if it's urban, it's more likely to be
0: possible. Penetra- well, not more likely to be penetrating, but maybe they have a higher incidence of that. Mm. And, yeah. So to speak about you know the, the the way that we'd have a look at these sort of patients, and there'd be probably no no difference really to impaired to an emergency patient that that we that we see and indoctrinate our our students and everybody we we come to meet in, in mm-hmm. lectures whether it's uh initially or from the bs or or, or or wherever we you know can't be invited to speak so the major body system is looking at that heart brains and lungs so is there anything Specific, or do you think the physical exam is uh, um, can can let us down, or has, has, has certain things with? Uh, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm pushing on the on the side of like use of ultrasound. Do you think that's changed the way you practice, or do you think it's just used as a useful tool if you have a specific question? So, um, no, I think it's actually a good screening tool. To be honest, like I actually
2: use it quite quite often in in bouncy patients because I mean, definitely the physical exam. I think doesn't change really between any emergency patients. I mean, it still needs to be thorough. Like, and and we often forget to do a thorough ascultation because we're very much, or even like an abdominal palpation because we're very much spoiled now by the presence of the ultrasound. But I think a lot of times, like especially in trauma, we speak about occult hyperrefusion, so the patients may actually be relatively stable on, on clinical exam and may have ongoing bleeding. And so potentially the ultrasound may come in in aid of increasing our um diagnostic ability uh, that the clinical exam may not actually or yeah their clinical exam may not actually identify potentially so
1: yeah and I think you're right Stefano mm-hmm. that what I, I I think it is something that's must changed with my practice over the past few years but one what I actually think is, is really important and what you're kind of suggesting is that when we do our physical exam on a patient that's just arrived if they've been traumatized in a recent past you know in the past half hour hour maybe in a couple of hours or even longer sometimes you don't appreciate that it may be they, they've they've bled but also things like your abdomen bile peritonitis. Mm-hmm. they're things which can take a while to show clinical signs um, and so using the ultrasound in those situations can be so super useful mm-hmm. to allow detection and I think we pick up on things much more readily than we used to and that's where i think actually given yes it's important in our referral population but actually really super important in our first opinion population because they're the ones that are going to look as you say they're they're arriving much more early to us and you know to general to people working in first opinion practice you see these traumatized patients much more early when they look fine initially and it's helping you pick up on some of those things and as you increase your skills you know picking up on things um like diaphragmatic rupture, potentially that kind of stuff as well. That you might not have, you know, might have taken a while to notice. Again, if they weren't that clinical for it late um, um, at a pre- prior to using
0: ultrasound. Yeah. Do you, do you when you if you listen to a chest and you think that that sounds normal? Do you still use uh, use ultrasound?
1: For me, um, it depends on several things. So, I mean, I I think um, it's really important to make sure we charge for our time and our. Um, our facilities so if I see a patient that looks perfectly stable, say a post-trauma patient, and it looks perfectly stable, and an oscillates perfectly stable, then I'm happy not to, not to perform an ultrasound on that and waste, waste in inverted commas, that owner's um, £50 pounds or whatever you would charge for a T-FAST exam. Um, however, I'd continue monitoring it, if anything changes, I'm, I'm going to do it. Some people will be much more aggressive and say, well, actually, it's justified in every, every occasion, and actually, I don't think we have enough literature out there, and again, this is going to be part of this trauma um, centre information that comes out, to show actually do we need to say you know x number of patients um have findings on t fast exams in trauma that are clinically relevant and we need to do something about that's the kind of information we need to make an informed choice there and then we can give that to our owners and say you know okay one in 50 dogs one in 20 dogs has something noted on that do you want me to perform that test it will cost you 50 pounds
2: no, I completely agree I think if you've got a sort of uh, suspicion on the clinical exam then you you may perform it it's not like to apply to everyone mm. um, although like yeah you can have sort of quote, um, ha- things happening but then We're a bit skewed because here we see referral cases which are often kind of sick.
1: More complicated. Um,
2: Yeah, more complicated. And I think we're also lucky on this side because actually we can keep, you know, I think it's useful to screen because then you can actually make the decision whether a patient can be sent home or not and um, here obviously we've got the uh, confidence of what well, the patient has to stay here so um, and maybe the ultrasound can give you a little bit more confidence in saying you know what like it's clinically normal and also i haven't seen anything going on but yeah. you're right it, it does need to be driven by the um by the clinical exam, I don't think we can actually and a
1: discussion with the owner
2: absolutely because
1: you know for some owners whatever the well not whatever but if you're making a suggestion and saying well I'm not sure that I'm going to see something but as you say I think that's often the thing owners may be reluctant or worried about taking their patient their their animal home and you can say well look I've had a look and I've checked for some things and I'm I'm really quite confident now that I'm not seeing anything abnormal that can yeah. help.
0: You comment in the in the article, uh, which is in in, in practice, uh, as as I said, the uh, about the use of um, peri- uh, looking at abdominal fluid. So obviously, the, the focus on abdominal tra- trauma. <clears throat> so, um, what what fluid types do you sort of expect to see or or not to see? And do you have the same approach? So when you when you have a look for look at that fluid, would you do the same things on each fluid? If that makes sense. <laughs>
2: I think I I would expect probably more likely to be blood Mm. and I wouldn't be surprised or worried if there was blood also because not many so, so if, you, if he
0: looks like blood, would you look at it under a microscope?
2: Or? Yeah, I think I would still do it, although I don't do it consistently, but I, th- I think there's always the risk that there could be a rupture of the potential intestine, and so you, you could potentially have like some sort of bacterial infection uh, or, or contamination within the hemo abdomen. Uh, it's a very small proportion, I think, Yeah, but I've been caught out by it, exactly. and so that's why so, I,
1: I will always do it now, yeah. because of, and I think that's that once-burnt thing, and I, I suppose, again, we come back to charging for our time, and charging for our um, our um, actual stuff we use. So, But actually it's a fairly cheap test and the con- and it's about the consequences, isn't it? So because the consequences of missing an intestinal rupture are so severe, actually, therefore I would do it. Whereas if we go back to our patient where we we're talking about do we scan, do we not scan, when they look clinically normal? As long as I've given them a backup and said, OK, I'm not going to do it now, but I'm going to monitor them or they're going to go home and I'm going to say come back at the first time of... Being worried about it, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. I suppose it's all about it's all about balance, isn't it? And having that check. Also,
2: because most of this don't actually go to surgery, so I think that's that's why yeah. you, ha- you actually have to check. Uh, while the hemoptomes that come for spontaneous hemoptomes, I mean, you, they're going to go to surgery very likely. So you, you maybe don't check with the mm. cytology. I mean, they're, they're inevitably going to go to surgery. This ones, most of them may be managed medically. So mm. there is a risk that if you just oversee one, like maybe you may miss the septic peritonitis. Because
0: I suppose the other time, we, we've seen a few that have looked like actually perhaps new abdomens, I suppose, because yeah. of the little bit of blood gaze a long way. And, Absolutely. And, yeah, so it was
1: spinning it down and checking the PCV, definitely, and, and seeing how that compares to... Um, compares to the peripheral pcv is is definitely sensible and then yeah absolutely i suppose there are other two fluids we talked about just before where your abdomen and um, bile peritonitis um now i guess bile peritonitis doesn't tend to actually be a very big volume um and so that tends to accumulate quite slowly so you know if you're seeing a large volume um uh, I suppose you spin it down and you look and see, and is, is there is the fluid ictric, is the fluid greeny tinged? Then you might think much more about testing it, but it's certainly not a test. I wouldn't automatically test for bilirubin in every, every abdominal fluid. And I don't think I'd automatically test, or I don't know if you do, but I, if I've sampled, I don't automatically test for creatinine or urea or potassium in it either. Unless there's, and I
2: think it may be wrong, but unless there's azotemia that yeah. makes me worried about yeah. it.
1: So or maybe particularly say there was a, you knew that there was a nasty pelvic fracture yeah, as well because again that's something that is definitely linked to the increased likelihood of your abdomen so yeah I don't
2: know how much evidence is there as well but I also do it like this like if the fluid is actually more cranial in between the liver lobes that's probably more likely to be potentially blood or as you said bile while if it's more near the bladder potentially you could have um, a more a higher risk uh, mm-hmm. of, of your abdomen again I don't know how much evidence based is there because I don't think anyone has looked at the type it's of fluid based off. on the localization of the of the
0: fluid within the abdomen. But probably right if it's a small volume of fluid then then maybe that, that is more indicative of, of, mm-hmm. uh, of a, a, a local yeah. leak around there. Mm-hmm. I suppose like peritonitis as well in terms of it, we've definitely seen some um, GI uh, um, ruptures that have caused peritonitis rather than mm-hmm. actually a biliary tract, back uh, um, biliary tract tissue as well i suppose mm. i suppose it's all sorts isn't it but yeah. uh, but the predominant factor is like with any with any emerging patient i suppose like keep the um keep the patient as cardiovascularly stable and control what you can control in the in the in the in, in the in the first place as far as um the article about diagnostic peritoneal lavage like is that something that you you do often do you think um, Obviously, I
2: no, I've done. You, <coughs> yeah, so I've, I've done it very rarely, and it's always in cases that were uh, actually septic, like uh, suspected septic is not necessarily trauma cases. And uh, literally, I've done it tw- twice on patients where I didn't want to give time for the fluid to build and then do it. Um, yeah, no.
1: I, I, don't know I if mean, you... I. I think we're spoiled by having a fairly decent ultrasound machine and. Uh, most fluid we can probably tap ourselves but if we can't we've got some lovely ultrasonographers we can go and get so it's rare actually we can't access the fluid but if you don't have a decent ultrasound machine or you're uh, less confident with your skills it can help from that point of view or you can do it blind as well but it can get a bit confusing and in trauma patients um, it's actually rarely indicated because the problem is if you're thinking about things like your rhabdom you're going to dilute everything so it'll be really hard to interpret the results if you're thinking about hemoabdomen it's the same bile peritonitis is the same in fact the only thing that can really help you with is septic peritonitis yeah. because otherwise you can't tell how much fluid was in there in the first place to work out how diluted it has become <laughs> so it has to be for septic peritonitis pretty much um, and and as we've already said although that can happen it's not that common in,
2: yeah. in trauma cases and the other thing I think just towards the discussion of this I think the diagnostic peritoneal is certainly a good diagnostic aid and very powerful potentially but it's potentially something that has been discussed before the advent of the ultrasound and of serial evaluation mm. of the ultrasound. So I think if you just if you've got the suspicion rather than having to sedate the patient and, and, and inject fluid to get a little sample, um, you may as well just repeat the ultrasound. Serially afterwards, I think that may help you in in avoiding a diagnostic peritoneal I yeah, think I, don't know.
0: I think that's a really good point. Actually, that's that's probably why we're not necessarily trying to be so focused at the time because we can we you know things will develop in time if there if there is some peritonitis yeah. developing or your abdomen etc. Then that that will develop over time. So is not only the use of ultrasound initially to make sure that everything's uh, okay, <coughs> but but also the serial evaluation. So it's, so it's made that kind of more focus on, on uh, blunt trauma, but do, do you have a different approach to penetrating trauma of the, of the abdomen than you would do with, with blunt trauma at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think essentially penetrating trauma is surgical unless you have to be talked out of it. You know, it's um, if, you're, if you have anything that's penetrated into the abdominal cavity or may have been penetrated into the abdominal cavity, it needs to be explored as with the thoracic cavity. So... I think, you know, it's a case of and this can be difficult sometimes. Bite wounds can be really hard to tell if they've penetrated into the like the actual gone through the layers because they don't neatly line up so you can see a hole going in. Often you can just see a, a bit of a mess and some fat sticking out and you're trying to work out what's what's actually gone on. So generally those patients need either very heavy sedation or um, general anesthesia, clipping, cleaning, flushing, and then explore of that area. And then if you're unsure, just following the tracks, etc. But if you're unsure whether it's gone into the abdomen, it can be useful if you do an abdominal radiograph, look for a pneumoperitoneum, that can be a nice sign to show that there has been um, penetration, or as I say, just surgical exploration. Now, it's, it's hard because I do realise, again, thinking with my first opinion head on, that you have to um, be pragmatic in these situations and not every owner can afford to do full explore and full exploration of wounds. Um, it can end up costing quite a lot. So in that situation, I think clipping and cleaning the wounds and just having a little poke around and see if you can see any and if you can't see any um, penetration into the abdomen and saying, look, this is where I'm at, but I can't guarantee that it hasn't penetrated. Best case um, best gold standard practice would be to explore some more, do a full general anesthesia and explore more, take radiographs, etc. But you know, if you can't do that, then we'll just have to monitor your your dog cat closely mm. and you let us know if you're worried i don't know if you have anything to add to that Stefano.
2: no no absolutely because also like uh, um, i guess there are several criteria in, like i guess in people they have like more stab injuries we have more bite wounds that mm. probably require explorer uh, not just because of the pen- penetration but actually of the pressure itself so yeah
1: crush injuries um
2: and, and i guess you know, there are several criteria, like the, the degree of abdominal pain or, or further imaging findings. I don't think we've got anything in veterinary medicine that says these are the criteria. If you meet them, then you have to go to surgery. Or if you don't, you can you can just wait for development. But in certain cases, I think it's reasonable to wait as long as, as we just are. I guess if, if, if the owners can't afford it and that's the only solution, I mean, we can just keep on monitoring and see if there is... Um, if anything evolves as long as we don't um just look somewhere else and just like not not um as long as we don't lose our attention on the patient yeah yeah you know, i as mean as it's gonna it's like on. to say
1: talking to that owner saying they've got to monitor them closely if they're taking them home telling them when they have to come back making yeah. sure they realize um that um that um their patient you know is not necessarily out of the woods
0: well, I, I, know, I know we're very close to time, so, I for, so I for that call. But but thank you um uh, very much for that. Probably what I do is is, uh, is cajole you into uh, into base sort of coming back to talk about my part two of your uh, of your uh, um, magnus opus. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. That sounds it's great, fun,
0: Don. But I probably won't be able to do that before Christmas. So, so I'd like to wish oh. you a happy happy Christmas. Oh, to thank to you, Karen Dom. and uh, and Thank you, and sure, Happy Dom. Christmas as well. Maybe you could thank say you, Happy Christmas to. All our Italian friends that are listening as well. Assolutamente. Buon Natale a tutti. <laughs> Oh, wonderful. Who knows what he said? <laughs> he <laughs> said that like, you look very beautiful, Karen. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And we'll wrap it up there. So, thanks again for listening, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your generic fruit based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave us a five star review, that would be that would be great. And <laughs> <laughs> tell your friends. Stop laughing, Karen. And tell your friends or vet friends or any friends that would be that would be great. We'll place um, some show notes or we'll a link to that to the paper we're talking about um, on the RPC pages. Um, and if you have a comment sort or of suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch so you can either email at uh, dbarfield at or you can tweet at dombarfield. until next time bye-bye.
1: bye bye bye